Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Cersei podcast. We hope today's message encourages you and inspires you. Before we get into that message, we want to remind you about just a couple of things. First off, if you'd like to get connected to what God is doing here at the Cersei campus, text the word Cersei to 88000 for more information about what's going on here at our local campus, and you can give online there as well. You can also get connected to life groups and so much more just by texting Cersei to 88000. Now get your Bible apps ready and prepare to hear a great word today. Can we put our hands together and welcome all those who are watching online today? Uh, Just want to uh, honor them and thank them for being with us. I also want to, before I hop in, I just want to thank uh, Craig for taking care of the church the past several weeks. Uh, Did a great job just going into candlelight. Um, They really had about 24 hours or so once um, I had COVID to decide how are we going to do candlelight and things. And so he just did a great job and I appreciate all of the leadership um, that he's done the past three weeks. So thank you so much. Um, This... um, Next month, I am going to do a series called What's Missing. And uh, the premise of this series is to really talk about what the New Testament church looked like and what the postmodern church looks like now. And I want to talk about the space in between those. And so I'm actually going to lead us to a text today, and when I get there, um, we're, we're going to read that same text every week for the next three weeks, okay? Um, and so if you want to study and get ahead and kind of look at where I'm going, you can read the first three chapters of Acts. Today also, um, I want kind of comes with a disclaimer, and I want to tell you that um, today may come out a little strong But I want you, um, the reason it may do that is because there's going to be some passion behind it. And this this message uh, today, I kind of, when when I wrote it out, in my mind and in my heart, it's really addressed to those of us who have been in church for a very long time. Maybe for those of you who have always kind of served and resourced a church and the local church is very important to you and for you, it's, it's part of your life and who you are and you've passed that passion on to your kids. This is kind of how I wrote that, would be to that particular audience. And so if it comes out strong, it's because you can take it. You've been in church a long time. And I just wanted to be a tad pungent today as we talk about the church, uh, capital C, and what that means as it relates to the New Testament church and the postmodern church. So as we go into a week of prayer and fasting, it's really on the heels of an extremely tough year. And it's not just a tough spiritual year, it's been tough relationally. Uh, For those of you who are social people, this year's been tough on you this past year. Um, It's been, um, for a lot of you, a tough economic year. Like you either had to make some moves, you had to cut back. Uh, Several of you, I know, you lost your jobs. Um, You transitioned. Maybe you took a lower salary because you needed to go to work. And so it was a tough economic shift for you. Um, obviously, church looked different and continues to look look different uh, because of things that have, have transpired. So it's not only on the heels of a challenging year, but also we're coming to this service today 
uh, following one of the most volatile weeks maybe in our country's history. We don't know. Um, over the past 12 months, like if, if you look back to January 2020 and you look at all that's transpired in 12 months' time, you're looking at we kind of started the year last year with a lot of racial tension and people chose sides and had strong opinions and what, whatnot. There was an impeachment trial. There was a, a, a Tiger King and, and there was a, a, a pandemic and now there was a congressional prayer ending in a man and a woman. And it just made for a very odd time. In 2020, 20 million jobs dissipated. And sadly, suicide was an option, a valid option for thousands of Americans who thought to themselves, there's no hope, like there's no way out of this. Depression took the title again as the number one disability in the U.S. And out of all systems of faith, Protestant Christians had the highest divorce rate last year. I, I, I say these things not to sadden us. And because you live through it, it certainly doesn't startle you. Like I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. But what I want us to do is to be able to look beyond the surface of, of these facts and things that are happening to us socially and culturally. And I just want us to be aware, like sit in this moment for a, a, just a second this morning and, and really get that there are communities everywhere, including ours, that are hurt and angry and lonely and spiritually lost. And if they're not spiritually lost, they're spiritually fatigued. So they're just kind of tired spiritually. And what I hope to do in this first message of 2021 is not lead you to be more organized. It's, it's not to get you to set achievable goals or resolution. And normally I would do that. I would say, hey, this is a great year to, or great time rather to start off thinking about where you are and where you are in God and, and to take some things and some spiritual goals and work those out. And I would apply that, that to Scripture. But today I just want that to be a little bit different. And I don't even want to dare us to some common language that we use around here. I'm not out today to talk about us having better programs. I'm not out to talk about increased volunteerism or improved giving. What I do want to do, however, is to answer one question, and that's what's missing, okay? So in the book of Acts, I want to just give you a little bit of context. If you're a new believer with us today or you haven't looked over this in a while, let me give you some spiritual context. So the book of Acts is obviously um, coming to us as the Acts of the Apostles, um, you can add, add believers to that. Uh, God's doing amazing things. But the context is that we've seen the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now for probably the first time in, in history, uh, biblical history, you're forging all these people together and they're somewhat formalizing into a group who believe and want to follow Jesus and it's all new. It's, it's all fresh. Like the resurrection of Jesus turned a page historically 
not only for a Jewish culture, but for how it would affect the entire world moving forward. You and I are part of that story. We're the outcome of this story going forward and forward and forward until one day it found you. And you too believed. So this is a new fellowship. These are new friends hanging out, discovering each other's story. Um, this is a group of people who are newly filled with the Spirit. If you look in Acts chapter 1 and into Acts 2, they had a power encounter that maybe has not been exemplified in, in any other time in church history than that one right then. An incredible experience of being filled with the Spirit. So they're a new fellowship with a new spirit, and they have fully embraced a new testament of Jesus Christ. Everything is fresh. Ironically, not a single one of them have a Bible. So they are engaged in this story of what they know, of what the apostles have taught, and so that leads us to Acts 2, and I want you to go with me there. Verse 40 through 47. He says, with many other words, he warned them. This is Peter talking, is, is, is the he. And he pleaded with them, watch this, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He was looking around, he was seeing what had happened, what was transpiring, and he's saying, listen, we, we got to be careful that we don't fall into the way everyone else is thinking and believing and doing, that this is new. We've been newly filled, we're newly established, there's a new testament, this is new and fresh for us, let's remove ourselves from this corruption. Verse 30, or verse 41 rather, and those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their, their number that day. Verse 42, they Watch this word, devoted themselves. This word is a synonym of, of commitment, of, of taking a piece of your life and making sure that it succumbs to something else. They devoted themselves to four things. Here it is. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and this word here simply means friendships, okay? And to the breaking of bread, this is not communion. This is nothing formal. This is food, meals, and to prayer. So they had teaching and prayer, friendship and food. And they did this on a daily basis. In verse 44, all the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number, here's this word a, again, daily, those who were being saved. Now we're going to read this every single week for the next three weeks. But I want to point some things out. There is a theme in these seven verses, a theme about daily, meaning a 24-hour period. That this newness, this New Testament, became such a part of them, it was not a part-time job. It was not a weekend service. It wasn't something that they just went and did. It became them. 
It was a lifestyle. It was so embedded and ingrained in them that it came out of them in a daily basis to pray, to be with each other in fellowship, to have meals together, to be taught. And again, there was no word. There was no written word for them, no, no canon, no organized Bible. So they talked about the stories that they had heard. Maybe one of them had been in Martha's and Mary's living room. Maybe one of them had been on a hillside and heard him speak. Maybe one of them had been standing on the shore of Galilee and heard him. And so these conversations started this commitment to get together and make sure post-resurrection that this story stayed very much alive in their group. And so the result of this of this pattern, this spiritual discipline of, of prayer and teaching and friendship and food became something that they did so often, and the result was they grew every single day. The church was on fire. I mean, they couldn't slow down the progression of people looking at them and saying, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of this story. I want to be baptized. I want to, I want to follow Jesus. It's amazing. So after reading that text, let me ask you again, and I just want you to spend just a little bit of mental energy as we talk this out this morning answering, what's missing now? Like when we read Acts 2, 40-47, and we look at how the church started in this, this uh, incredible empowerment and this daily spiritual discipline, what's missing now in the postmodern church? So let's fast forward from 3 AD to 2021. Okay, If we look at the gap, the 2,000-year gap between what we read in Acts and what we see now, I want to talk a little bit about that. Because I think we have a very diluted church culture as compared to Acts chapter 2. I think in, in our own minds, we consider church as a weekend experience rather than a daily experience. And as we look across the, the diversity of belief system, even within evangelicals, um, you, you see that we all have different opinions even about how that weekend experience should be exercised. And somewhere over the, uh, the years, the forging of a new group who had a New Testament, who were newly filled with the Spirit, suddenly, somewhere in that 2,000-year gap, star stopped impacting the world and started looking at each other and saying, well, you're wrong and I'm right. And the energy of the church turned inward to try and prove that somebody was right and someone was wrong. Now, this is something we've always struggled with in our humanity, but for, to see the church turn it inward takes us all the way back to when the Pharisees used to do this in the streets. So we have a very watered-down church culture. A lot of believers have downplayed and even dismissed the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying this to be comical, but a lot of times people are like, okay, listen, I'm good with God. Okay, 
I'm, I'm good with him. You know, I, I read the Old Testament and I, I, I see, you know, things that he did. And, and I know sometimes, you know, he was probably a, a little more mad than I would have gotten about a circumstance. But, you know, he's God. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm great with God. And then we go, I'm great with Jesus. And we tell the story, you know, Jesus was the calm one. And he, you know, we, we build this good cop, bad cop between God and Jesus. And then we get to the Holy Spirit and we're like, I don't know anything about him. And I, I just, I would just rather say that part's over. Like, like it, it went, you know, to the end of Acts and then that, that, that's it. It's, it's convenient for me to just say, I, I, don't, I think that was for them. It's not for us. It jump-started something and after that we're done with it. And a lot of us have downplayed or dismissed this, this working of the Holy Spirit within our current lives. A lot of times our personal doctrine no longer makes room for miracles or any encounter with God's presence. And I struggle with that. Because in this New Testament church, expecting God to do something that they could not do on their own was part of the DNA of that church. The level of expectation was so much higher than we're just going to get together and talk shop, or we're going to get to we're going to come together and talk, a, a, you know, sing a few songs. Um, it became what is God going to do among us? What is God going to do through us? And if I'm being honest, over the, the years, I, I've had people come in and talk to me about their salvation experience. And you guys know here, I use a lot of language a lot of times that's, that's not necessarily related to the sinner's prayer because I don't believe the potency of salvation is found in what I prayed or didn't pray. I think it's found in whether I am or am not following Jesus. So when Jesus called people, he said, follow me. He didn't say, pray this prayer and then you and I are, 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 are good. And somehow that got related into the modern church. Pray this prayer, then everything's great. And so we've considered that the sinner's prayer is the end game. It's, it's crossing the, the tape. And I'm going to tell you that, that becoming a follower of Jesus right then, that moment of salvation, is the starting block. It's the point of a new adventure. It's the point of something great and spectacular and exciting. It's not the end. But over the years, I've had many, many people come to me and talk to me, especially as it relates to us as, as being in the South geographically. They'll say, Kevin, uh, listen, I, I don't know about you know, the ongoing process of my life being transformed. I don't, I don't really understand the point of, of sanctification, like becoming more like Christ, because if I've prayed and I'm good, then I'm good, right? And there, there's really just below the surface of that statement is another statement. I don't want to go to hell. And so what tends to fall is in, into a trap in a lot of, of our southern mentality is, I just want to pray whatever I need to pray so that I'm good eternally. Outside of that, I don't care if I ever believe God for anything else. I don't care if I ever see a miracle. I don't care if I ever expect to see a marriage get back together or something restored or a life changed. All I need to know is when it's all over, I'm moving this direction. And then we sit. And that's what the church becomes is almost like a low energy, uh, you know, like, like I'm good. 
and other people should make their life good. And the church loses, capital C, so much energy about trying to reach a community and get people involved because they think I'm good, now I'll just let other people be good as well and then we're all good. I'm good, you're good, we're all good. But let, let, me, let me tell you this. Only 50% of evangelicals believe the Bible is inspired, okay? Meaning this, that God breathed it, that he spoke it, ordained it. Now, men, men wrote it, certainly, but that it was inspired by God. Only half. The other half of evangelicals believe that the Bible is a book of fable and legend and life principle, but has no authority over their lives. In, in, in other words, take it or leave it. If it appeals, great. If it doesn't, great. But it has no authority. So to give you an image for that, put a piece of tape down this center aisle, and let's just say that this half over here would totally believe that, yes, we have the Bible in print, but it's a book of fable and legend and life principle, but... I can take it or leave it. And then Thomas Clegg in his book, Lost in America, tells us two out of three people in America claim no church. Now, I could get into this a lot because I love the, the local church so much. But what's happened is we almost have an entire generation that says, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. And, and that's where the problem lies because Christ died for it. And, and so it's, very, it's a very hard pill for me, me to swallow to go, yeah, I'm a believer. I love God. I really do. I serve God, but I'm not going to church. Clegg goes on to say that 350,000 evangelical churches in America did not report a single salvation. Thomas Rayner, in his book, Insights from the Unchurched, says that it takes the average congregation of 85 people to see one person come to Christ. Do you see the big difference between here and the book of Acts? So what I believe is really missing is this, the effectiveness. So when we... As, as, as we start this series, we have to, to consider the effectiveness of the local church. When, when we look at only half of people who are evangelical saying, I don't even know if the Bible's inspired. I mean, it's got some great stories in there, but is it really from God? Or, yeah, I love God, but I, I, don't, I just don't love the church. The effectiveness when 85 people are required to see one person come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that's a long way from seeing 3,000 people saved in an afternoon. So I'm not concerned really that the church is going to be more timid in five years because of persecution, but I am concerned that in five years from now, it could be considered ineffective and maybe even from some of the people who have called it home. It's possible that if we're not careful that in the next five years, people have said, I belong in the church and I've served it and resourced it, but it's just not, it's not effective. So let me talk about this for just, just a moment. 
The effectiveness of the church is not determined by its place. All right? Now, I, I have seen, and you have too, that churches can rise up and thrive in the middle of an African plain, right next to a Buddhist temple, in an inner city, or in a small college town in Arkansas. The place has nothing to do with the effectiveness of the church. People have everything to do with the effectiveness of the church. You can go to some of the most poverty-stricken areas, some of the most broken-down buildings or storefronts or inner cities, and you put a group of people there who want God involved in their daily lives, and I'll show you a place that's about to birth a church. Because it's not about the place. It's about the people. John the Baptist, he did not have a good place. He may have not even been considered the right person. His his home base was the north end of the muddy and often cold Jordan River. But multitudes came because they wanted to hear the message he was carrying. Why? Because they had waited centuries to hear it. Jesus did not have a good place. He didn't have a church. He didn't have an office. He didn't have an address. He spoke on hillsides, gravesides, shorelines. But multitudes pressed him because he could stop a funeral or stop a storm in the same day. He was God in a physical body. And they said, we've got to drop everything we're doing and get to where this guy's at. It was something that was that was new and full of life. The principle here is this. Who we are is more important than where we are. It doesn't matter if you're in a rural community, an inner city, an African plain. It it doesn't matter where you are. Who we are as a church is what really, really matters the most. The effectiveness of the church is not determined by its plans. I believe in planning because God planned. I believe in being organized because God was organized. You look at Genesis chapter 1. Every day of creation was beautifully orchestrated. You look at Jeremiah 29. He says, I know the plan I have for you. Because he's organized. He's got a plan. I know the plan I have for you. Plan to prosper you, not to harm you. Plan to give you hope and a future. God's like, I've thought about you. And I've got something in line for you. You're on on my list. The Bible even tells us that we're written on the palm of his hand. God had a set of plans for his temple. You can find that in 1 Chronicles 28. He gave them to David. David passed them on to Solomon. Those plans were so detailed It took seven years and took 183,000 men working 24 hours a day to get it done. The furniture was crafted and overlaid with gold by master artisans. The orchestra had 4,000 instruments. If this same temple, Solomon's temple, was built today, it would cost about $174 billion. But those plans and that project meant nothing until the glory of God visited it and came into it. 
It was just a plan. It was just a building. It was just a thing until God showed up on it. And so my challenge really for us is to think in the same manner. It's not enough for us to plan well. It's not enough for us to have, have, a, have a building. It's, it's not enough for us to be in the right location. It's not enough for us to sit in rooms and plan. we got to have God bless the things that the church is doing. Our effectiveness is based on one impressive factor, and that's you and me, the people. The church is not a secular organization. It is a spirit-infused entity that Jesus himself prophesied would thrive, an entity that he would marry, die for, and return for. That The church is something that is serious. It's not something that is, that is just pacified but it's something that requires a daily devotion, has to be, be part of us. Third, the effectiveness of the church is not determined by pandemics. This same month last year, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being ugly, I'm being honest. This same month last year was the strongest month we've probably ever had in existence of our campus here in Searcy. We had more people serving in our church than any other time last January. Last January, your families, your families, were resourcing and funding ministry all over the world. From right here. Attendance was increasing. People asking to be baptized. Last January, more life group leaders in motion than we've ever had in our, our existence. But right now, people are the most afraid they've ever been. Afraid to lead, afraid to serve, afraid to be involved, afraid to commit. And sometimes people are, are so afraid of what's going on, they're like, I don't, I don't even want to get out of bed tomorrow. I don't want to face the world tomorrow. So we have let a lot of things get in our heads and we've allowed the enemy to use these things to rob us of gifts that were made available to us by the same spirit that jump-started the church in the book of Acts. Let me end, end with this one. The effectiveness of the church is determined by God's presence. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 18 says, It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. How I want to use that today is this. We have to hold on to the mission of the 21st century church while holding on to the mandate of the first. We've got to be able to bridge this gap. We've got to be able to fill in the missing pieces. We've got to be able to revisit what, what it was that was turning communities upside down. I'm going to go so far as to say this. If we don't have one finger in the book of Acts and one finger in the face of adversity, then we're not going to be an effective church. If we don't fight for the presence of God to be in the place and in the plans and beyond the pandemic, then we don't have what it takes to win anyway. 
It's going to require the Spirit of God beyond intellect, beyond trying to be solution-focused, even beyond physical resource. It's going to take the presence of God for the church to be effective. So the question, if we settle for a church without the presence of God, then what's left? Well, all that's left is what the Pharisees had in 3 A.D., They had strong opinions, they had sad theology, and they fought foolishly over who was right. And it's easy to fall into that corruption. To go, well, let's just just pick a side. Let's just pick a side and and find some theology that backs up the way we we feel, and we'll just fire across the walls at, at each other until Jesus returns and sets us all straight. The presence of God is what still changes lives. The presence of God is what brings people to the cross. It's the presence of God that makes people say, I want to be baptized. It's not a plan. It's not a place. It's not even the pressure of a pandemic. The presence of God is what says, I look at my life and I feel like there's something better in there. I want to close with with this thought. And again, I want to speak to those of you who have been in church your whole lives. When I um, graduated high school, I didn't really um, know if if college was really going to be the thing for me. And I had had um, kind of an an up and down uh, academic experience in junior high and high school, meaning I I changed schools a few times. And and so when we even moved from Little Rock to here in in the middle of high school, so my friendships were shallow. I just didn't have that group around me that was going, where are we going to college? What are we doing with our lives? And so I decided that I was just going to go to work for a couple of years and try to raise some money and try to choose in that two years of time what I was going to do. So my sister was working at the hospital and she got me a job there. And this is in the, in the early 90s and I, I got this job as, a, as like a surgical tech. And so I'm 18 years old and in the early 90s there were still parts in healthcare that would be much like what we would call a physician's assistant now. It was like anything that a, an, an MD would would be there for and watch and observe and sign off on, you could do it up to a certain degree. I'm not talking about, I didn't have my hands in somebody's chest, but I was there. And so I got this job as a surgical tech working for one of our surgeons here in town. And if I told you his name, you would know him. He's been here forever. But I got to working for him. And over the course of two years, you know, he mostly did about five surgeries. And I poured myself into this job, and I loved it, and I, and I valued it, and it really jump-started my love for healthcare too. But I got to this place where after two years in, in doing these surgeries routinely week after week after week that I, I knew his system, and I knew the way he did them, and he was very efficient. And so oftentimes I would already have in my hand what I knew he wanted next. And so I prided myself in, in valuing that, and I prided myself in, in kind of being ahead of him. 
in knowing what he was going to reach for. And, and in my 18-year-old mind, I thought, man, I, I've got, I mean, I've got to be a valuable part of this team, right? I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm studying him in this procedure, and I'm, I'm saving him time. And, and, and one day he calls me into his office, and um, I, I thought, well, this, this is going to be good. And being naive, I thought, um, he's going to call me in and brag on me. This was about the eight, 18 month mark. And I sit down in his office and he says, Hey, I need, I need to talk to you about something. And he said, You're, you're about to lose your job. And I said, How, How's that? And he said, Because there, there's something happening that I, I, I don't like. And unless you fix it, I'm going to let you go. And I was shocked. And in that 60 seconds, I, I, I just played over and over and over again. What, what did I do? What, what has happened? And he made this statement to me. He said, Kevin, you are anticipating so much what you think I'm going to do that you've stopped listening to what I need you to do. So... Yes, you know the procedure and you know the system, but there are times that this doesn't always go the same route. And what I need you to do is stop anticipating and start listening the way you did the day I hired you. And he said, so you go home and you think about it. And I went, I was in complete shock and I went home. Now that was 30 years ago. And the way I'm going to bring that in today is this. Sometimes as professional Christians, professional churchgoers, we, we know how to do church. We anticipate what's next. Like we can come in here or any church in town and go, okay, there's going to be a prayer today. We're going to sing a song. We're going to hear a message. Uh, we might high five a few people, at least we did a year ago. And then we're going to uh, walk out, and then we're going to start our weekend. Maybe this week I'll attend a small group or a Zoom call or something like that. And so we punch the card, and we, we do our thing, and then we leave. And then we know the next Sunday there's going to be a prayer and a word and a song and a life group or a Zoom call or a high five, and then we're leaving in the next week. And so we, we anticipate what's going on. But I sense as a pastor that we need to come back to this place of newness where we stop going, I know what's going to happen and I know what you're about to go, God, what are you saying right now? Like, what do you want from me right now? Because this is more than a Sunday or a song or a sermon or a life group. It's deeper than that. And the problem is that a lot of us get the word and, and, and we get it here. But I'm, I'm telling you that you've got to let the word of God put on some scuba gear and dive down until it hits the bedrock of your personality and changes you. And changes me. And in so doing, it changes our church. And so let's don't be professional Christians this year. Let's stop anticipating what we think God is going to do and come back to going, God, I'm just listening. I'm, just, I'm here. And what you asked me to do, I'm going to do. 
And for some of you, that might be that here in a moment when, the, when our team comes up here that you go, right now, I'm not going to think about lunch. Right now, I'm going to think about worshiping God. And maybe for you this year, that means I'm going I'm to close my eyes. I'm going to lift my hand. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to be in worship rather than just watch worship because I'm exhausted by anticipating every move as a professional Christian I need to come back to the newness of going God I just want to do whatever you want me to do I'm just listening I'm just listening God I love you for our church and I thank you